Let's turn to God's Word together. Our Old Testament text, Isaiah 8, 20 through 9, 7. Isaiah chapter 8, starting at verse 20. This is the very Word of God. Let's pay attention to it, loved ones. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And we'll turn to our New Testament text, Matthew 4, verses 12 through 25. Matthew, of course, here quotes that text we just read from Isaiah, which speaks of how God is going to cause light to shine in a place where there is deep darkness. It's the light of the coming king, the one on whom the government shall rest, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4, then, verses 12 through 25. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, 
He saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. As we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, the story has been all about Jesus. But Jesus himself hasn't really taken the stage yet as the main Actor and the main one bringing, uh, moving, moving the action of the story along. There's, there's been lots that's happened to Jesus. He's born of a woman. Uh, he's uh, he's um, uh, laid there in the in the manger in in Bethlehem. He's taken to Egypt by his parents to avoid getting uh, killed by Herod's massacre of Bethlehem's boys. He's brought back from Egypt to Israel by his parents. And then, uh, of course, we see him, once he's grown, going to be baptized by John. He's taking an active role there, but then he's he's submitting himself to be baptized. And then he goes out into the wilderness. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Mark says the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. So this is, you know, he's, he's being brought along by the Spirit. And then Satan comes and tempts him. And Jesus, of course, resists every temptation. But all this so far has been more on the passive end of things. He's been receiving action. Now that changes here in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has humbled himself. He's taken on the role of suffering servant and king of God's people. He's, he's shown himself to be true and faithful to Israel in all these ways that we've seen. And now he takes the active role. And he starts going on the offensive against the kingdom of darkness, against Satan and against sin. And he, he shows himself here to us to be the king. And he shows us that he's come to bring his kingdom in power and with authority. He takes action. He starts his mission here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. How does he do it? How is he going to come and and bring the kingdom of heaven? Inaugurate the kingdom. How is he going to do it? Is he going to bring an angel army to come topple the might of Rome? That's perhaps what the Jews were hoping. Is he going to come and kick out Herod from the palace and say, this is mine, I'm going to be king here now? How does he bring the kingdom? He starts by preaching. This is how he is manifesting himself as the king of his people in the first place. As a preacher. Preaching the kingdom. That's our first heading this morning. The preacher. The king is the preacher. King Jesus brings his kingdom by preaching. There's a couple things we need to see here as we consider this this morning. Two things the text highlights for us as it discusses, as it, as it portrays Jesus for us as the preacher. The first is this. You need to see where Jesus preaches. 
This is important. Matthew makes a big deal out of it. After Jesus is, uh, excuse me, after John has been put in prison, Jesus goes to Galilee, goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and then from there he goes to the city of Capernaum, which sits at the very top of the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and that's going to serve as his home base for ministry. That's where he's going to be going out from to the surrounding towns. This is at the very tip of uh, the, the northernmost part of the land of Palestine. And as, as we're told here in the text, this is the land that traditionally, back when Israel first came into the Promised Land under Joshua, this is the land that belonged to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why does Jesus do this? Why go up north, this, this region here in Galilee? Why not begin in Jerusalem, for example? That seems like it would make more sense, perhaps. I mean, the, the, the simplest and most straightforward answer for why Jesus chooses to do this is that he's fulfilling prophecy. We see the prophecy, Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So he's going there to fulfill that prophecy. But it's not just arbitrary. It's not just like, this is what was prophesied, so this is what Jesus decides to do. There's not anything arbitrary about it. There's an important reason to this here. Galilee, these tribes, Zebulun, Naphtali, and the region of Galilee, this is at the northernmost part of Israel. It's on the border. And it's then influenced by the nations around it. Throughout its history, it's, it's influenced by the pagan practices of the other nations around it. That's why Isaiah calls it Galilee of the Gentiles, or, or the nations. You could translate that. In Isaiah's day, as Isaiah is writing about this in Isaiah 9, uh, it's, it's the region that's also going to suffer the first blow from Assyria. Assyria is mounting, right? They're going to they're be coming and invading and bringing the people into exile, the northern kingdom of Israel. And the first place that they're going to hit is this part of the country, Galilee. This region is going to bear the brunt of their first attack. So Isaiah says, you're a people living in darkness. You've got the darkness of the influence of the nations around you, their sin, their idolatry, right? The, the darkness of Gentile influence. And you've also got the darkness of impending exile and judgment from the Assyrians. Galilee in Jesus' day was much the same. Continued to be influenced by the pagan nations around it. Um, there's a town up in Galilee, the very far north, called Caesarea Philippi, which actually had a temple to a pagan god, the god Pan. It was built on the site of ancient Baal worship. This is a region influenced by the nations around them. And also, this region lives under the sense of, of an ongoing kind of spiritual exile from God. The tribes that were conquered here by, by Assyria never really recovered. There's no, there's no great return of the, the ten northern tribes that are conquered by Assyria. So there's Jews living in this area now, but they're living under this sense that they are still in some way in exile from the land of blessing. So as Jesus comes here, what's he doing? He's picking the darkest place to begin his ministry. He's picking out the darkest place in Israel as the place where he's going to go establish his kingdom. He's looking for the likely candidate, right? And he chooses, he chooses the, the least likely one. 
as the place where he'll begin his ministry. He moves toward those who are lost in sin, toward those who are under the shadow of exile, toward those who are under the wrath of God. He moves towards them, demonstrating for us that this king has come to bring grace. He's come to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, not for the righteous, the religious leaders, right? but this kingdom is for sinners, for those in darkness. He's come to bring the light of his gospel to those sitting in the darkness of influences of sin and a sense of exile. This is good news for us, isn't it, as well? We are all apart from Christ in the dark. We're we're in the darkness of our sin. We're in the darkness of worshiping other gods. We're in the pitch black dark of the wrath of God. What what does darkness um, mean for us, right? What's our experience of darkness, right? Picture that it's a power outage on a dark night. And you've got just you know, barely any light. And you're stumbling around looking for something in the dark. You're confused by it. right? And, and it's, it's dangerous. You're going to stumble. You're going to trip. You can't find things. You're, you're going to be disoriented in all these ways. right? That's our spiritual state. Confused, disoriented, endangered. And then Jesus comes. He says, I'm going to meet those who are in darkness and bring light to those who are in darkness. He brings the light. Right, like the sun, brilliant, bright, showing his grace, showing his gospel. This is where Jesus preaches. He comes to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. The second thing we need to see is what he preaches. He comes, he travels around the whole region, he's, he's going all over, preaching from town to town, uh, preaching and teaching, and these huge crowds are flocking to him to hear him. And what, what, is it that he's, what is it that he's preaching? He goes into the synagogue, he preaches, he teaches there. What, what is it that he's, that he's preaching? Matthew 4.17 gives us the summary statement, his main point. 4.17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sounds just like what John the Baptist was preaching, right? As we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus is saying the same thing. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But as Jesus says it, there's, there's a different note struck because he's not just the forerunner of the king saying the king is coming to rule and reign. He himself is the king saying the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. It's coming. It's imminent at the very door. He himself is the king who's come to bring righteousness and justice and judgment and salvation to the people of Israel. That's what Jesus is preaching. Matthew calls it in verse 23. He refers to this again. He says that Jesus is preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that the king has come. Now, as we think about this, we thought about this before, but as, as we're thinking about what Jesus is saying here, we need, to, we need to reflect on this question again. Is the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus was preaching then, is it still at hand? As Jesus said it was there in the first century. Right? Is the kingdom of heaven still at the door, imminent, coming? Right, I think sometimes we can get this sense that Jesus came and preached the kingdom of heaven, and that was sort of like the first movie. And now we're in this in-between stage waiting for the second movie, the sequel, when he returns and brings the kingdom of, get, uh, of heaven again. That we're sort of in this weird in-between state, looking back at when he started the kingdom, waiting for him to bring the kingdom in its fullness and power, but not really ourselves living in the midst of him bringing his kingdom. 
what we need to see, brothers and sisters, that the message of Christ, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is no less urgent for you and for me today than it was for the Jews hearing Jesus preach this in the first century A.D. That as much as Jesus could say to them, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, even more so, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ has, and we, we've seen him, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, reigning as king, pouring out the spirit, church advancing. The kingdom of heaven is pressing, urgent and immediate. We're living in it, in, in, in the beginning of it. What does this mean? It means a few things. It means that we need to understand we're living in the age when God is establishing His rule with just as much power and just as much grace as He did during the earthly ministry of Christ. Just as much God is building His kingdom now. There's a direct line between Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom and pastors now preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It's it's of the same kind, heralding the same thing. He's still preaching. Christ is still preaching the gospel of the kingdom through his ministers in the church. This also means for us what Jesus so clearly says it means for us. His first word in verse 17, repent. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Therefore, you need to repent. It's urgent. It's imminent. It's coming. Repent. Acknowledge your sin. Own your sin. Confess your sin. Grieve over your sin. And seek God's grace to help you turn from your sin and walk in holiness. This is, this is the doorway to the kingdom. This is how we enter the kingdom, through the doorway of repentance. If you don't seek to enter the kingdom through repentance, you do not enter the kingdom at all. You face judgment from the king instead of salvation from the king. Loved ones, we need to pay attention to this. Jesus is preaching this word to those who think they are part of the kingdom already. He's not going out to the Gentiles and telling them about the kingdom coming. They need to repent. He's preaching to Jews who thought they were part of the kingdom. He's preaching to those who bear all the outward visible signs, the external signs of belonging to the king and his kingdom. Right? Circumcised. Jewish follow the law, practice the law, keep the Sabbath, right? All these things. But he's saying, you need to repent. We need to hear that, right? Because many of us, we we have the external markers of belonging to the kingdom. Externally, in many ways, we look like we are part of the kingdom of God. Are we repenting and walking in repentance? Grieved over our sin? Seeking to turn from it more and more, day by day, by the grace that he gives us? This is how Jesus starts. This is how he brings his kingdom. As the preacher, preaching the kingdom of heaven and the necessity of our repentance to have a part in that kingdom. But he doesn't just preach. He does something else as well. He also comes and he heals. This is our second heading. The healer. The king is the healer. In the uh, the Lord of the Rings, the final installment there, the return of the king... Aragorn, the king, comes to Gondor, his kingdom, and one of the signs that proves to people that he is the long-awaited king is the fact that he alone can heal those who are deeply hurt. And there's this old wives' tale, right, in the story that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. 
The hands of the king are the hands of the healer. This is how you'll know the true king. His touch will heal. Tolkien's not being original there. Right? Where is he drawing this from? Look at our text here, verses 23 to 24, as we look at our Lord Jesus Christ as he brings his kingdom. He says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. They brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. As Jesus goes around preaching, his audience starts to look like the waiting room to the emergency room at the hospital. Right? All these kinds, all, all kinds of sick people are coming to him. And they're all being healed by him. He doesn't turn any of them away. He touches them. He speaks a word to them. And things that they thought could not be cured are cured just like that. A touch from Jesus, a word from Jesus, and the chronic pain that these people were suffering with disappears. Paralytics can walk for the first time. Imagine what that would have felt like to go to Jesus and have him speak a word and your physical suffering that you've been going through just disappears. Wouldn't, wouldn't you go? If you heard about him, wouldn't, wouldn't you go get your sick uh, mother and, and take her to Christ or, or, or your friend? It's come see Christ and be healed. And you'd hang on his words and you'd marvel at his power and you'd wonder at his grace and his kindness as he exhausts himself healing others. But why is Jesus doing this? He's going about, he's healing. Huge crowds, right, are coming to him. Why is he doing it? Is he just building hype and drawing a crowd? No. Clearly not. He he often tells people when he heals them, don't go tell other people. The, the crowds that are coming to him are, are, are making it hard for him sometimes to do his ministry of preaching and teaching the gospel. He tells people, you're coming to listen because you ate your fill of the loaves. You saw the cool miracle, and now you're coming to, that. that's why you're here. You're not actually listening to what I'm having to say. So he's not doing this just to draw a crowd and just to show people his power and his authority. No, what, what's he doing? He's, he's doing it to confirm his preaching. Right, he does it as he preaches the gospel to show people that what I'm saying is the very word of God. We see this. We look over at Mark chapter 2. We see there Jesus healing the paralytic. That story. Jesus says to the paralytic, before he heals him, he says, your sins are forgiven. People start saying, who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, what's easier to say to a man, your sins are forgiven, or say to him, take up your bed and walk? And then he says, to show you I have authority, the Son of Man has authority, to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. The man gets up and walks. Argument one, Jesus can forgive sins. He has the authority. He's using this divine power to prove the authority of his word, show that his preaching is true, that he really is the king. That's one of the reasons I think Jesus is doing these miracles. There's another reason, though, that we should see, another important reason. These miracles aren't just confirming what Jesus is saying about the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The miracles themselves are proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of heaven. You see that? They're not just confirming with Jesus' words that the kingdom is coming. They themselves are also preaching that the kingdom is coming. 
Think about it. Jesus could have done different miracles to demonstrate his power. And he does sometimes. Calm the storm to show his power and authority. Right? He, could have, he could have done uh, other things like that more often to confirm and prove his power. Why does he choose to do miracles of healing to confirm his word about the kingdom? It's because he's showing us what kind of a kingdom he's bringing. He's showing us that He has come not just to deal with sin. Yes, that's what He came to do first and foremost. But the effect of that, the consequence of that, is going to be healing. Restoration. All things made new. He's come to deal with with man's fall into sin. He's come to deal with that. But He's come also to deal with the wages of sin. Death. Right, and that's what, all, that's what all sickness is. It's, it's, a, it's a symptom of our dying, right? Of our mortality. That he's come to deal with that. He's come to make all things new. So as we look at Jesus here, this moment in Galilee, when this, when this, uh, uh, this unbelievably good Christ has come and he's healing every disease, we're seeing a picture. We're, we're, we're tasting a little bit of what the coming of Christ's kingdom is going to mean for those who are His in all its fullness. We're getting a little appetizer of the main course that's coming. Jesus is showing us what His kingdom will be like when it comes in all its glory. We read about this fulfillment in Revelation 21, 4-5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. As Jesus heals, that's what he's showing us. What kind of a kingdom this is. What it's going to look like when the kingdom is, comes in all its fullness and all its glory forever. Loved ones, let me encourage you to savor the taste of that, the appetizer here to the main course that we see here in Matthew chapter 4. Savor the foreshadowing you see here as, as Christ brings his healing and hunger after what's coming. Hope in and long for the full consummation of the kingdom that's coming when he makes all things new. It's tempting for us, probably, to look at what Jesus is doing there in Matthew 4. Say, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have gone to him and have him touch me and this condition, right, is healed. I don't have to deal with that anymore. Or I could take my, 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 uh, my, my elderly loved one and have them healed. But loved ones, every one of these people that Jesus touches and heals is going to get sick again and suffer again and die. Because it's not the fullness of the kingdom yet. It's a foreshadowing. So don't look at what they experienced there and wish you could have had that. Because what you do have in Christ is so much better. Look at what they experienced and say, that's a picture of what I get in Christ. Resurrection life. Eternal life in His kingdom. Loved ones, you will see Jesus in His kingdom. If you're trusting in Him and walking in repentance by His grace, you'll see Him face to face. And He will touch you and heal you forever, never to suffer any pain again. And your loved ones who are trusting in Christ, yes, the day is coming when He will speak the Word and they'll be healed forever. 
restored, perfect resurrection life in His presence, body and soul, forever. Long for that. Now, we've looked at the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage here in Matthew 4, verses 12 to 25. We've considered Christ the King preaching, bringing the kingdom that way. We've considered Christ the King as the healer, proclaiming the kingdom that way. In the middle of those things, Matthew sandwiches something else. In the middle, he says, here's the heart of what I'm saying, the point I don't want you to miss. All right, he, he starts with uh, this preaching of the kingdom, and he ends with preaching and healing about the kingdom. And in the middle, he puts this thing that he says, pay attention to this. This, this is the real important bit, the application here in the, in the middle. So let's look now in the middle there, verses 18 to 22, and what we see about Christ here. And in our final heading here is the master. Christ, the king, is the master. In, in the middle of all this traveling around, preaching, teaching, drawing crowds, healing, casting out demons, in the middle of all of this, Jesus does something really specific. Matthew's been painting with broad strokes, giving us the big picture of Jesus' early ministry in his preaching, his teaching, and his healing. Right? He's not giving us specific stories. But now, he zooms in. And he does give us a specific vignette, a little story that we need to pay attention to. Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee here. He sees two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. They're throwing their fishing net into the lake in the midst of, of their work there as fishermen. And Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they follow him. Then they, they, they go on, Jesus is going on, and he sees two more brothers, James and John. And they're in a boat, mending nets with their father, and Jesus calls them. And immediately, they leave their boat, they leave their father, and they follow Jesus. Three aspects that we need to see here. Jesus' call to discipleship. Jesus' call, first of all, comes with authority. Jesus' call comes with authority. Teachers and rabbis who went around teaching, speaking to crowds of various sizes, they were common in Israel. That wasn't unique to what Jesus is doing, but, but they would draw students by their teaching. Right? They wouldn't go and say, you follow me and be my disciple. It was more like signing up for a, a, a college course. You, you take a look at the professors, you say, I'd like to take with that guy. And so you decide you're going to go follow that teacher. But for Jesus here, this is so different. He, he, he doesn't wait for disciples to choose him. He chooses them. He says, you, follow me. He calls them to himself. And it isn't an invitation or a suggestion. It's a command. It's a demand on them. You, follow me. His word comes with all powerful force. And they obey immediately, irresistibly. They go after him. It's like gravity. They can't resist his word to follow him. Jesus is doing something unique here. Right? He's, laying, he's doing something unrepeatable. He's laying the foundation of his church. And he's picking out his apostles. And yet, there is something here that we can learn from his call to all of his disciples. Right? He calls his elect to follow him. He says, you, follow me. Has he said that to you? You, individually, you, personally, follow me. 
Have you felt the power of his call on your life, his irresistible grace overwhelming you and drawing you to himself? Strong sense that you are following Jesus Christ, not because you've decided to, but because he called you to himself. You might think, well, it it would be different if I could hear his voice audibly telling me, like he did Peter and uh, Andrew and and James and John, saying, you, Peter, follow me. If if he called me audibly by my name, maybe then I would feel that strong sense of call. But loved ones, by his Spirit, he calls us by name. The preaching of his word, the reading of his word, that's his word calling you to follow him. Jesus' call comes with authority. Second thing we see about Jesus' call, it comes with exclusivity. He calls these fishermen here, and in doing so, he calls them to leave everything else. He says, you follow me, don't follow anything else. Matthew makes a point here of saying that Simon, Peter, and Andrew leave their nets. They leave their vocation. They leave their work to follow Christ. And then he makes a point of telling us that James and John leave their boat. They're they're fishing, right? They leave their trade. And they leave their father to follow Christ. This is telling us something important about what it means for us when the Master, Christ, calls disciples to himself. It's a total call. It's comprehensive. Demands everything. It means you give up all autonomy. It means your work is at his disposal. Whether he calls you, like the disciples, to leave it and follow him or stay in it and follow me, it's all his. Your families are at his disposal. Everything we have and everything we are, when we come to Christ, we've got to give to Christ. That's what his call demands. He comes first, before our work, before our family, before our parents, our children, our spouses. Now, just before them, as though he can be first and all these other things can be unrelated in another place, but no, all of it comprehensive is his. He's in charge of all of it. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Give up being your own master. Die to yourself. Christ is the master now. Christ's call to follow him comes with exclusivity. Third thing we see, it comes with responsibility. He calls Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John not just to follow him passively. He calls them to an active discipleship. He calls them to come and take a part in the work of bringing the kingdom, to make them not fishermen, but fishers of men now. They have a part to play. They're going to be preaching and teaching and, and healing as well. They're going to be, doing, uh, they're, they're going to be fulfilling this purpose of, of, uh, uh, of uh, bringing the kingdom along with Christ, co-laborers with Christ. And again, there's a unique role these 12 are going to play, right? That that Jesus is calling as his disciples. They're going to have this foundational role in building the church. But Christ is calling all of us to come and not just be a passive follower of Christ, but a witness bearer to Christ. That's part of what it means to be a disciple, to be an ambassador of heaven, to see that my agenda is Christ's agenda. My work is his work. And that's what he has called me to. Wouldn't you count it a privilege? to serve as an ambassador for the United States? 
What a, what a responsibility and privilege that would be to represent the United States to others. How much more to be a representative and an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we all are. Ambassadors for King Jesus. Well, we see Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they don't hesitate. They hear the call, and they don't hesitate. They count the cost, they leave everything, they follow Christ. Do you think they ever regretted that decision? Think about what's going to happen to them because they follow Christ. This is a decision that's going to lead to martyrdom for three of them and exile in old age for one of them. Right? According to tradition, Peter's crucified upside down. Andrew's crucified on an X-shaped cross, according to church tradition. James is going to be the first apostle martyred, beheaded in Acts chapter 12. John is going to be exiled at the end of his life. If you could ask them, was it worth it to say yes and follow Jesus? What would they say? I think they'd say something like this. Look at what we gained. We gained Christ. We gained the King. We gained eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. The one who heals all our, uh, forgives all our iniquity and heals all our diseases. What's a little suffering in this life? What's a whole lot of suffering in this life? compared with gaining the king and the kingdom. He is the savior. He is the healer. He came in his grace and sought us out in our darkness and the shadow of death. He brought us into his kingdom. He has risen from the dead and he's going to destroy forever the power of death for those who are his. We'd be fools not to have answered Jesus' call. Loved ones, as Matthew sandwiches this bit about discipleship in the middle of telling us about how Jesus is the preacher and the healer is proclaiming the kingdom, he's saying to us, Jesus is calling you to follow him. Answer the call. You'd be a fool not to take this king and follow this king. Loved ones, Jesus offers you his kingdom. He says, repent, come and join in my kingdom. Come be a fisher of men. Come and, 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 and have a share and a part in the kingdom of heaven. Come trust in me, he says. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have called. We pray that you, by your grace, enable us to answer your call and to follow you faithfully. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.